You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. Can't run a civilization without energy. And I do think we're going to end up with a plentiful supply of cheap enough, green enough energy to get the job done. Over time, it becomes harder and harder in the face of the falling costs and some of the obvious benefits of these new technologies for anyone to argue to maintain the status quo. For October 18th, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Energy technologies don't come into existence from nowhere, and they aren't value-neutral. They all have investors, constituencies who promote them, and incumbent industries who defend them. Not just because they believe the technologies are good, but because they are deeply invested in them in one way or another. But supporters know that it's not very persuasive to admit that they advocate for a technology because of their personal investments in and involvement with it. So they promote the technology as if it were only valued on its merits. This is why oil supermajors talk about how vital oil and gas is to the global economy and what we use those fuels for, instead of just talking about their role in the industry and the actual reasons why they advertise their products. This is true for all energy technologies, but it's especially true for nuclear power. Lay people hear messages about the advantages of nuclear power and how it is used, but they have almost no idea who's generating the messages they're hearing, or why. They are given to believe that nuclear is being promoted simply because it is good, not because there are extremely rich and powerful people and agencies who have a vested interest in promoting it. They are asked to consider nuclear purely on its merits, without understanding the first thing about how little the actual merits, and more importantly, its demerits, weigh in the decisions to continue building nuclear power capacity. While the actual reasons and mechanisms by which investments in nuclear power are made are carefully and deliberately hidden away from the public. At the same time, the need for clean power generation is becoming increasingly urgent as the damage caused by climate change becomes ever more severe. And this is serving to sway a growing contingent of green advocates and climate activists alike who are increasingly supporting nuclear power out of sheer desperation. But it seems to me that the discourse on nuclear is really dysfunctional, and half of the story is missing. We need to set this straight. I'm not talking about the long and tedious history of the nuclear versus renewables debates, although that is certainly part of the story. I don't think any of you need a refresher on it. In any case, I think we've covered the gist of it in numerous episodes already, including episode 62 on how advanced cost recovery for nuclear plants swindled the American South. No, what I'm talking about is nuclear power's long history of deceit, corruption, high costs, and total lack of credibility, as well as its roots in nuclear weapons, for which civilian nuclear power acts as a fig leaf. Those are the actual reasons why utilities stopped buying nuclear plants decades ago in the U.S., and those are the same reasons why we should pause and carefully consider whether it makes sense to continue supporting the industry and publicly subsidizing what is now the most expensive form of power generation. To walk us through this largely untold history of nuclear power, our guest today is journalist Stephanie Cook, the former editor of Nuclear Intelligence Weekly and author of In Mortal Hands, A Cautionary History of the Nuclear Age. 
She began her journalism career at the Associated Press, and then began covering the nuclear industry for Nucleonics Week, Nuclear Fuel, and Inside NRC. Since her start covering the nuclear industry over 40 years ago, she has become an extraordinarily seasoned journalist on the sector, with an extensive memory of its development. Since joining Energy Intelligence in 2007, when Nuclear Intelligence Weekly was launched, she has overseen global coverage of the commercial nuclear industry and its role in the energy transition, including analysis of comparative costs, both social and economic. Currently, Stephanie is a regular contributor to Energy Intelligence World Energy Opinion. She also writes and comments on nuclear for other media. It's a true pleasure to welcome her to the show and dive into this most contentious of topics in the energy transition. Then in the news segment, we'll see how the U.S. Senate just approved another 20-year extension of the Price-Anderson Act that shields the nuclear industry from its liabilities. We'll review how Texas is starting to integrate virtual power plants. We'll applaud an expansion of a residential DER program in Vermont. We'll check out an interesting new approach to space heating. And we'll chalk up the latest withdrawals by the insurance industry from its exposure to climate change-related losses. And now, our conversation with Stephanie Cook, recorded August 29th, 2023. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Stephanie, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Before we get started on today's topic, I really think we should just establish your bona fides. Would you briefly summarize your experience as a journalist of nuclear energy? Right. Well, I began reporting on the nuclear industry in 1980 and met people all over the world some of whom had been associated with the very early days of the post-war nuclear development. One man in particular, a Frenchman named Bertrand Goldschmidt, had actually separated radium isotopes from Marie Curie. Wow. <laughs> and he was the only Frenchman briefly involved in the Manhattan Project. Anyhow, after that and over the course of my career, I've interviewed lots and lots of nuclear scientists, industry leaders, government officials, and obviously read a ton. There's a steep learning curve. I was a reporter for the general news before writing on the nuclear industry. I reported for the Associated Press. And there you're just sort of going out and reporting on whatever comes up that day. But for nuclear, it was really learning the history yeah. and the current situation. So it was a lot of learning. I definitely believe that. So yeah, you've got a very long career here as a journalist and what, at least 20, 30 years of reporting on the nuclear industry specifically? Yeah, I tried to get away from it for a while. I reported on financial markets and tried to do some other stuff mm. just to get away from it. And then I sort of got drawn back. I was persuaded when I was living in London to try to write a book about it because I had a perspective that wasn't really from inside the industry. It was kind of from observing it from the sidelines. And so I ended up writing this book, which came out in 2009, mainly to answer a lot of questions for myself about why things went the way they did, but also hopefully to explain to the average person the problems I saw in the industry. Yeah, yeah, okay. So in your book, In Mortal Hands, A Cautionary History of the Nuclear Age, you write that your views about nuclear changed over the course of your career. So how did they change and why? Well, I started as a kind of uninitiated supporter of nuclear power, really knowing nothing about it, but wondering if concerns about safety, even after Three Mile Island, were exaggerated. Yeah. But over time, as I talked to people and watched developments, and even before Chernobyl, I began to understand that nuclear safety was 
difficult to guarantee because the technology was so complex. I had to grapple with the challenges of nuclear exports and concerns about nuclear proliferation. Mm. In those days, remember in the early 80s, South Africa was still a nuclear weapons state. Pakistan had not exploded its first weapons, but it was on its way. North Korea was emerging as a threat and later Iran and Iraq. Mm. I started covering issues related to nuclear waste and saw how fraught the issue was. And I kept thinking to myself, all of this was to boil water for electricity. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, that's something that surprised me in reading through your book is how much of it was really about the history of nuclear weapons and that the elements of the story that had to do with nuclear power were sort of secondary. Yeah, in a way they were. The two are so intertwined. I didn't see how you could write a book without linking the two. Right. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk a little bit about the history of the nuclear industry, because I don't think many people really know that much about it. So how did we wind up with a nuclear power industry in the first place? Well, the story really starts with a despondent U.S. President Eisenhower wondering how he can soften the image of nuclear weapons for the public. Remember, this was the 50s. We had the spectacle of Hiroshima and Nagasaki And people were beginning to realize just how monumental the consequences of those bombings were. Mm. So he and his advisors came up with the Atoms for Peace program, which he ultimately sold in a strong speech before the UN General Assembly. Then the United States set up the Atomic Energy Commission to oversee and really promote nuclear power. But there was one major problem at that time, which is kind of interesting to note, which is that firms like General Electric and Westinghouse, which had been involved in the Manhattan Project and well understood the dangers, refused to take on the liability for possible accidents. So Congress was forced to pass legislation, which is known as the Price-Anderson Act, under which the industry accepted only a minimum amount of liability. The amount today is about $13 billion but the public had to take on the rest. Without that, the industry would not have developed. So the AEC grew so powerful that Congress decided to split it up in 1974 and created the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to regulate the civilian nuclear power industry and then set up the, I think it was called ERDA, Energy Resource Development Commission. But two years later or three years later, that became the Department of Energy under Carter. Huh. And Carter honestly, genuinely wanted to promote civil nuclear power and sort of change the image of the agency. But since it was in charge of managing the nation's nuclear weapons program and the vast network of laboratories that existed to to just make sure that there was enough material for weapons and that, that the weapons program went on, that all remained in that agency. It's now in a semi-autonomous part of the DOE called the National Nuclear Security Administration, or the NNSA. So that's a very short snapshot view of how the industry developed. Yeah, and that's really helpful. And I'll add, in case people aren't aware, that Jimmy Carter was a nuclear engineer. And actually, there was a rather famous episode when he personally entered a reactor that was I think on the verge of meltdown in Canada, as I recall, (laughs) to help shut that issue down. Yeah. 
Yeah, he understood the dangers of nuclear power. We could get into that later Yeah, when you talk about... But it's often been said that the DNA of the U.S. Department of Energy is really nuclear. And so I think that's an important thing to understand here because I think the casual observer would say, oh, it's the Department of Energy. Their whole thing is all the different forms of energy. And I think to some extent that is today true, but I think still the core of the department its values, its beliefs about the direction of the future and so on are still very much rooted in the nuclear industry. Yeah, it's a very nuclear-centric agency. I wrote about it in an op-ed for the New York Times back in 09 when my book came out. Huh. And it's still the case that, as far as I know, the budget of the DOE is still roughly two-thirds nuclear, with a lot of that going to the NSA and the weapons program. So yeah, the culture is very nuclear-centric. Right. And so this is an important point because I've had a lot of our listeners and, you know, other casual observers reach out to me and say, you know, it's really puzzling that the U.S. Department of Energy is so focused on nuclear, like especially given what are obviously very challenging market conditions and that the U.S. nuclear industry and really the global nuclear industry in a lot of ways is not really growing. And so why is the DOE so focused on it? I just keep telling them, look, it's in the DNA of the agency, as they say. It is. But I think there's a more serious issue here, which is that how can we really do an honest assessment of the fastest way to reducing emissions and going to zero with a biased agency? In other words, yeah. we need, in my opinion, we really, really need the government's weapons program and arguably even nuclear waste should be lopped off and put in a separate agency. We need a serious energy agency, which is non-prejudicial and looks for the very best ways forward, which would be developing renewables, developing high voltage direct current transmission lines to get renewables from where they aren't needed to where they are needed. I mean, I don't want to get into that now because I know this is a more conversation about nuclear, but there's a whole lot that needs to be done that isn't being done because it's not coordinated properly at the top. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with that statement. Okay, so nuclear power was really from the very beginning funded and developed by government, not by the private mm -hmm. sector. The private sector sort of took over the civilian nuclear power industry later. But as you point out, the Price-Anderson Act was designed to shift most of the liability cost or the liability responsibility onto the public through federal backstop of liability because the private sector just simply wouldn't proceed with developing nuclear reactors on their own. They were not willing to take that risk. And so I've been looking at all the different entities that seem to be funding and promoting nuclear power now. And I think it's worth taking a minute to talk through them because, uh, again, I think the casual observer seeing another article in the press about why we must have nuclear to proceed into the clean energy future is just really not aware of who's behind those statements. So maybe you could just give us a quick overview on who funds and promotes nuclear power now. Right. Well, first of all, you have the Department of Energy, which is always front and center promoting nuclear power and is responsible for the current program to promote small modular reactors and advanced reactors, and even more recently came out with a report suggesting that we should have 300 gigawatts of new nuclear power in large-scale reactors by the year 2050, which is impossible. I mean, that's more than double what was ever built in this country. Based on the cost of the only new build ongoing in Georgia, it would cost, oh, 
conservatively three to five trillion dollars. Yeah. <laughs> so it's absurd. Yeah. So that machinery in the DOE is very strong and it's very closely tied to people in the industry. It has been for a long time. I mean, you said the private industry took over. They did and they didn't. I mean, yes, they are building plants and so on and so forth, but they're always got one hand out to the government mm. for money. Mm-hmm. Which is why now you have a lot of utilities saying we need to keep our existing reactors running. And for that, we need subsidies. Uh And so they get state subsidies. They've gotten federal. They've been extremely successful in getting this because they've sold this as clean energy and part of the climate change. Right. And it's worked brilliantly. Nuclear is more popular than it's been in a decade. And investors, you ask where the money is coming from. So the money, DOE is funding about half of all these projects. And then there's a lot of subsidies coming to the existing reactors. That's all coming from the taxpayer or the ratepayer. And investors, I don't know how much private money has gone into the latest craze, but there are some investors who've been persuaded that advanced reactors are somehow new technology that can provide solutions to climate change while reducing nuclear waste for less cost. These are extremely misleading claims made by promoters, and there's still a large swath of the financial community that is not persuaded. Mm. You have an industry, Fluor, GE, Westinghouse, fuel cycle companies, who have an incentive to grow their business. But as I said before, a lot of it remains dependent on government support. And it remains a sort of symbiotic and unhealthy relationship. It's not like just about any other industry that I can think of. Yeah. There's utilities like First Energy Southern, TVA. They see nuclear as a necessary component of baseload electricity, even though the entire model for producing electricity is changing. And that's very much in their DNA too. Like these are cultural... If I can put it this way, these are cultural beliefs that are strongly held within those companies. Yeah. And when they do it, like Southern, they can put their CapEx charges for their projects into the rate base, for right. the guaranteed return on investment. There are structural situations in the marketplace that need to be changed. And one of them is this CapEx model, which really goes back to the early part of the last century when power lines were being built. And then it was justifiable because we were building out a whole power structure. But that remained in place and they get maybe the amount changes, the ROI, the return on investment, but say 10%. So what's it to them? They get their money back. Their Southern stock price, have a look. It's pretty good as far as I know. (laughs) And even though they've turned in this monster vocal project, which is... A disaster waiting to happen from what I can see. But they continue to do it because they're not going to build another big nuclear power plant anytime soon after Vogel. Right. Let me be fair. But right. But that is a problem. But it exists with other types of energy projects too, that the more they spend, the more they can recoup. And it's not a great model for smart 21st century Procurement. Right. Power sector that needs to get to zero, which is never really going to happen, but to get towards zero. And it's not going to happen fast enough if we keep getting distracted by these huge projects that are not going to solve the problem. Yeah. We mentioned also politicians and pro-nuke think tanks and then the rank and file nuclear nuts. The think tanks honestly believe that they have been persuaded, some of them, that nuclear is necessary to solving climate change, and they're earnest about that. 
and I understand their concerns, but I feel that they don't see how it's actually getting in the way of a speedier resolution. Yeah, in fact, I think I've said on this show before that in my view, or at least based on my experience dealing with the nuke nuts, especially on social media, functionally, they're basically indistinguishable from a religious cult. They, yeah. they believe because they believe because they believe. And it's just their faith is unshaken no matter how many of their talking points you shoot down. They just move on to the next one. And it's circular. Uh, and they just will always, always believe that nuclear is the only solution. And when you try to have a factual discussion with them about that or even address some of the claims that they make, they're just not really interested in the data. They just really have this article of faith that nuclear is the only way forward. And it's very puzzling to me uh, why that is. Well, it's interesting because I remember back in the 80s even going to conferences and watching, just watching the body language. And the thing that struck me was this word belief being attached to nuclear power as if it were a religion. I mean, you didn't sort of believe in oil. You didn't really believe in, I don't know, believe in steel, believe in anything. Belief isn't what was connected to a lot of industrial development. It was more just, it made sense or something. But there was always this kind of religious zeal around nuclear. And I I have never really gotten to the bottom of it. Don't know if I ever will. <laughs> yeah, you know, I continue to puzzle over it regularly. <laughs> but <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess the key question here is why do all these different entities continue to back nuclear? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. If you're now wondering whether times have changed and the U.S. government has perhaps recently adopted a more transparent and market-oriented stance toward the peacetime use of nuclear power, wonder no longer. On the night of July 27th, the U.S. Senate passed the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2024, which included a Senate-approved bill authorizing a 20-year extension of the Price-Anderson Nuclear Industries Indemnity Act. 
As you may recall from today's conversation, the Price-Anderson Act, as it's more colloquially called, is the one that lifts the liability for any off-site lives and property lost in a severe reactor accident off of the nuclear industry and shifts it on to the U.S. government, which is to say, all taxpayers. It was originally passed in 1957 because the builders of nuclear plants, like General Electric and Westinghouse, had refused to build any plants if they had to absorb the actual risk. The reauthorization also provides for funds to compensate victims of a nuclear accident. According to an op-ed written by former U.S. Regulatory Commissioner Viktor Galinsky and published in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist this August, although the act provides some funding through a self-insurance scheme funded by the owners of nuclear power plants, it only amounts to about $13 billion for post-accident public compensation. But the estimated cost of the 2011 Fukushima accident, several hundred billion dollars, dwarfs that amount. And according to a 2014 report from the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, 19 U.S. nuclear plants that are essentially identical to the ones at Fukushima could potentially release far more radioactivity and therefore cause much more damage than the Fukushima disaster did, should they have a similar failure. And if such a severe nuclear accident did occur, the U.S. government would be on the hook for the additional costs. The commissioners at the time dismissed the concern on grounds that such an event was improbable. But that doesn't make it impossible. If it were so unlikely, why would the industry still be unwilling to cover its own liabilities? And if the plant builders won't accept the true financial risks of a possible nuclear accident, why should the public, whose health and communities would be affected, be forced to assume it? As if to underscore the covert nature of the reauthorization, it was approved without any public hearings at night. It was first attached to a spending bill known as the Accelerating Deployment of Versatile Advanced Nuclear for Clean Energy, or ADVANCE Act, of 2023, which was placed on the Senate legislative calendar on July 10th and added to the Must-Pass National Defense Authorization Act. As of this writing, the authorization apparently has yet to pass the House. Procedural details aside, the continued willingness of the U.S. government to backstop all liabilities and costs owing to a severe nuclear plant accident, while denying the public any opportunity to willingly consider and accept the risk, and instead quietly forcing it onto the public in the dead of night, says all that need be said about the continuing relevance of the conversation we heard today. Item 2. On August 23rd, the Public Utility Commission of Texas announced that it had approved the first pilot project allowing virtual power plants, or VPPs, to approve dispatchable power to the Texas electric grid. The PUC first directed the Texas grid operator, known as the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.